A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 122, Wycliffe and the University of Oxford. Last week, we spent a bit of time talking about the church and religion in the mid-14th century. Up to now, since the conversions of the 7th century, England has by and large been a good son of the church, with barely a hint of heresy. It took the Pope's side against the Irish interpretation of the Catholic faith way back when. It's had nothing like the Cathars or the Waldensians. Okay, it's been a bit chippy about paying papal taxation, but in matters of pure faith, it's towed the party line. This week, we're going to talk about how that changes, however briefly, and how dissent creeps into our history in a way that looks spookily like a dry run for the Reformation. We're going to talk about a chap called Wycliffe, John Wycliffe. But that sounds all too easy, so I'm also going to use the opportunity in talking about Wycliffe's life to update us all on the universities, how they've developed over this time, and what a university education looked like back then. Largely, I must confess, it's going to be the University of Oxford version. The thing about Wycliffe is the variety of ways he's represented. There's everything from a 19th century view that this is a man whose intelligence, commitment and personal dedication led to a 14th century reformation only to be equalled by the real thing 200 years later. He's been presented as a purely scholastic philosopher, and in the more extreme view, he's been presented as a failed, bitter academic, a careerist whose writings represent a bitter kicking against the institution that failed to give him the recognition and success he craved. His success in inspiring others is a little surprising, although we don't know much about the man's personal characteristics, because generally he comes across as a little dry and academic. And his influence long-term was probably stronger in Bohemia through Jan Hus than it was in England. So in the words of Kronk, weird. And anyone who can follow that reference can have a prize. So, to begin at the beginning, is Wycliffe. As I say, we don't have many personal descriptions of the man, As a contender in the scholastic disputes of Oxford in his forties, he was described as deep, as speaking well and with distinction. It was said that he was a solemn and learned figure, both in speech and knowledge. Wycliffe said of himself that he had on occasion indulged himself with excessive eating and clothing that might have been better going to the poor, and admitted to losing his temper easily. I have often lapsed into indignation or irritation, he wrote. But then, hey, He was an academic. What did we expect? The clearest external comment we have of him was from a Lollard called William Thorpe, who described him as a spare man, a man of moderate and harmless habits, able to win the affection of those who knew him. They loved him dearly, he said. It's not much to go on, but it's something. So where did he come from, this John Wycliffe? He was born around or before 1330. 
He was part of a busy, rising family from Yorkshire, most certainly not of the first rank. But they had acquired themselves a manor, and they had acquired themselves a friend and patronage in the person of John of Gaunt, and they were getting appointments in the church to boot. So with that in mind, around the late 1340s or early 1350s, a young John Wycliffe arrived at Oxford to study at the feet of the Masters, which gives me a cast-iron, honest-to-goodness, no-poo opportunity to talk about the 14th-century University of Oxford. The Universities of Oxford, Cambridge, and for a brief time the University of Stamford in Lincolnshire, were growing fast, fuelled by the opportunities their education gave for a career in the church or government. Universities were pretty much the only great leveller available in medieval England. The only way, with the possible exception of success in war, or maybe just a few in the highest ranks of the merchant elite, in which people from relatively humble backgrounds could rise to the highest level. The first thing to note is that the universities are emphatically part of the church. Though, as we'll see, they're pretty autonomous parts of the church, but they are part of the church. In Oxford, the friars are very much involved in the university, and all the scholars were considered to be clerics from undergraduates to doctors. Oxford didn't have its own bishop at this time, it was part of the vast diocese of Lincoln, and so in theory was subject to the authority of the Bishop of Lincoln. But of course Oxford wasn't happy with that for long. A university was essentially a guild, a corporation in the finest medieval tradition. It's just that rather than specialising in something like fish or hats, it specialised in knowledge and learning. So basically a university was a corporation of masters, just like a guild. The masters in the craft of scholarship set and monitored the standards to be gained, though in rather different a way to the modern method. And then you had apprentices, otherwise known in scholastic parlance as undergraduates. You had journeymen, otherwise known in academic parlance as bachelors, who had not quite yet proceeded to be masters of their art. Just like any guild, the organisation had various rights and liberties that it managed to extract from the king and from the church. So the university's courts were exempt from interference from the Pope or from the royal courts. In the 14th century, the university had also managed to win more freedom from the Bishop of Lincoln, with papal confirmation that it had the right of its own leader, namely the Chancellor. So, just like we've been hearing about London, there's a strong tradition of fighting to keep and to grow the university's autonomy and independence. As such, it would fiercely look after its own, but equally fiercely discipline those of its members whose actions threatened its survival. Wycliffe was to profit and suffer from both these characteristics. Over time, the university developed its own executive arm. At the top of this was the Chancellor, an office that probably started from 1214. The Chancellor could arrest and imprison people, he could remove a master's licence to teach, and he could even excommunicate people. He presided at the Congregation of Masters as the headmaster. But despite the fact that in theory the Chancellor was the deputy of the Bishop of Lincoln, in practice, if he proved to be a fake and a phony, and if the Masters wished they'd never set eyes on him, it was the Congregation of Masters where ultimate authority lay, and they could remove him. 
because, as we said, the Masters had recently won the authority from the Pope to be able to control the appointment of the Chancellor. At the Chancellor's side were the Proctors. They were the legal officers of the university, essentially, and there were two of them. But why two, I hear you ask? Good question, and thanks for asking it. Well, originally, gentle listener, the students were divided into two nations, the Southerners and the Northerners, with the dividing line between them being drawn at the Neen River in Northamptonshire, which is really quite far south, and makes me emotionally an expat of the North living in the South. These nations were essentially gangs, and like gangs at school, or at least at a boys' school, they fought each other. There is a deal of violence at the university, again, just like there is a deal of violence in the towns when the apprentices flooded the pubs and taverns and caused chaos. Although the nations were officially united in 1274, and therefore in theory done away with, the identification of the students with them and the violence continued. The proctors organised congregations, saw that the beadles were elected, organised public disputations, made sure the laws were kept, and represented the university in external disputes. They could remove masters, they could stop them lecturing. And beadles, by the way, were administrative officers reporting to the proctors, and there were six of them in Oxford. We're all used now to using the word degree as the outcome for most university undergraduates. The word degree, in Latin, the word for degree in Latin is gradus, or step, or stage. Because a degree was just a stage in the process of proceeding to become a full doctor. It started with a degree in the arts, often called the liberal arts. Now, I have often wondered why they're called the liberal arts. Did it mean they were the subject approved by the 19th century political party, Were they about teaching people to throw their money around in a generous and liberal way? Now, one of the few advantages of spending all your free time hunched over a bunch of history books and sitting in a drafty shed is that on occasion you learn some of the answers to the universe. And so the reason for the word liberal arts comes from the Latin liberales. Because these were subjects that were worthy of study by libri, or free men. So that's where it comes from. How fab a fact is that? Anyway, we were talking about degrees. So you started off with a degree in the arts, and everyone had to do this. If you made it, you became a Bachelor of Arts, and in time, a Master of Arts. The arts curriculum was composed of seven subjects, divided into the trivium and the quadrivium. The trivium contained grammar, logic and rhetoric. The quadrivium were all the mathematical subjects, arithmetic, music, geometry and astronomy. And whoever you were, you had to do all of it. There was no specialisation at this level like there is at a modern university. These days you achieve your qualifications by demonstrating that you've achieved a set of learning outcomes with defined standards of achievement. That wasn't the case back then. In days medieval, the job of the university was to make sure that the content itself was substantial enough, and if you could get through it, then broadly you were there. Though, as we'll see, as a master, you'd have to go through at least some kind of specially observed disputation. So if you achieved this, 
off you went into the wide world and so on if you wanted to. But you could then stay on to do a higher degree. And this is where you began to specialise, and you had three subjects that you could choose. You could specialise in theology, in medicine or in law. And if you then achieved your high degree, that's when you ended up as a doctor. Now we don't specifically know everything about Wycliffe's life at Oxford and actually very little indeed about his early years. But let's follow him through the years at university and then we can segue neatly into the controversy he caused. So we can visualise the young Wycliffe turning up at Oxford before the 9th of October, the Feast of St Denis, when term traditionally started. He might well have come in the company of a bringer, a bloke rather like the school bus who picked students up along the route. On his first night, Wycliffe probably checked into an inn, maybe like the mitre which survives in Oxford still today. The University of Oxford was very different to today. Wycliffe wasn't arriving through some admissions process. He was simply going to a place where a number of masters had gathered together and formed a loose corporation, this kind of educational guild we've talked about. So Wycliffe went to find himself a master to teach him, for which the master would charge a fee. And when Wycliffe felt he'd learned all he could learn, he'd find himself a new master. One thing to note was the age of these students. Going to university was more like secondary school in terms of age. There would have been students possibly even as young as 12, though 14 was more normal. Usually, it took you seven years to wade through the curriculum. And so you finished 21, which is pretty normal, of course, for the modern day. The language of instruction and education was Latin. So however painful, you had to learn it and you had to know it before you arrived. Amo Amas Amat, Aki Romani, Cornelia Est Puella and all that. The relative youth of the students was matched by the youth of many of the lecturers. Because, basically, if you decided to start in the world of academia, you would become a regent master. And this meant that you had a licence to teach, and were actually teaching. If you then decided to go and get yourself a job somewhere else, once you were a master, you were always a master. But if you no longer taught, you dropped the regent bit, and became just plain master. Once you were a master, it was pretty much impossible to force you to teach. It was entirely your choice, but there were some rules. And one of these, that when you initially became a regent master, you had to spend the first few years teaching as what was called a fellow. So this meant that a large proportion of the regent masters were in their early 20s. Wycliffe would have got himself somewhere to live, and at this time, he'd have probably just found himself lodgings in the town. He might have found himself in a hall, where a group of students lived under the control of a principal. In the generation after Wycliffe, it became mandatory for students to live in approved academic halls. Control of the principal over their students could be pretty loose. The students were at perfect liberty to move from hall to hall as they wished, if they didn't like the conditions in the one they were at. Oxford University at Wycliffe's time would have been small enough for him to recognise most of the students after a while. There could have been something like between three and 6,000. So Wycliffe would have found himself his own regent master 
because actually that was a requirement. He had to be listed by an approved regent master to be part of the university, even if he then moved on from regent master to regent master. The whole environment was pretty chaotic, and as with much of life in times medieval, it was tinged with violence. The townspeople of Oxford were not always duly grateful to have such an august institution on their patch. Now, since I went to a small university town, I understand the feeling. Students can be noisy, smelly and inebriated on a semi-permanent basis. Now, that can be bearable in Leeds when you're a small part of the population, but in a small town it can be really, really irritating picking your way through the pools of vomit on a Sunday morning. And so there was violence. It was violence indeed in 1208 that led to a group of masters leaving Oxford and founding Cambridge University. There were continually repeated disputes, street brawls and squabbling. So in 1355, for example, there were a series of riots called the St Scholastica Day Riots, which Wycliffe must have seen, at least, and who knows, maybe even been involved in. What happened was that the townspeople went on the rampage, sacking university lodgings and beating up the scholars. The bells of the university church at St Mary's were rung to summon the academics to war. And at the other end of the town, the bells of St Martin's were rung to summon the townspeople to arms and the two gangs met and fought tooth and nail on the high street in the middle. Many academic halls were completely looted, gutted and burned. Unfortunately for the townspeople, the university had more powerful friends. And all the violence achieved was that the university acquired new rights. The town was placed under interdict. Every townie had to do penance. It was pretty clear to the townspeople that there were two classes of citizen here and they were not picking up the gold medal. So for the first few years, young Wycliffe would have been called a scholaris and sophista, i.e. a student disputant. He would spend his first year questioning. Then once he had the hang of asking the right questions, he'd then learn about responding. And the whole point of all of this education was to make sure that the student had mastered all the arguments that could be put for or against a particular question. Teaching methods included the good old traditional honest-to-goodness lecture. No doubt these varied as much as they do today, from the droner who just read from the book to the more invigorating who leaped him out a bit. But a core part of the teaching and learning process was the disputation. This exercise required several student objectors, and then a respondent who would normally be a Bachelor of Arts, and then you'd also have a master presiding over the whole thing. There was something deeply adversarial about the whole system. Students were used to arguing with each other, as were the masters. There were many masters in a university, and lecturing masters were used to having students stick their hands up and tell them that their master down the road thought his theory sucked and had a much better explanation. As with life with the townspeople... There's a lot of chaos, cut and thrust. So after four or five years of this, Wycliffe would then have started studying for his Bachelor of Arts. He didn't have to pass an examination. Basically, he just had to convince his regent masters that he'd mastered the curriculum. And this was usually done by a process called determination. Determination involved the candidate for the Bachelor of Arts 
presiding over a series of disputations by the younger undergraduates, as we've just talked about. So if the bachelor did a good enough job in responding, then he'd made it. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Wycliffe aspired to be more than a Bachelor of Arts, though. He decided to stay in academia and become a master. To get this qualification, he gave lectures for junior students under supervision. When ready, the process of qualifying for his master's status was known as incepting. Wycliffe would have been presented to the Chancellor of the University in the Church of St Mary's with the words still used today in the process of inception, assuring the Chancellor that he had the right stuff, and, interestingly, that he wouldn't go and help those parvenus trying to set up a new university at Stamford in Lincolnshire. Next, there had been a big disputation led by the new master, which gave him a chance to show off his talents. And then he'd get the symbols of his office, a ring and a book held open. And finally, of course, since this is, after all, the Middle Ages, the new master would have to throw a hooli, a feast for all the masters of the guilds. And you can bet your bottom dollar that the masters would all have picked up their robes and hurried down for a freebie like that, which could cost the new master a fortune. So Wycliffe had become a master and a fellow and regent master of Merton College by 1356. He spent some time at Balliol and had a period as a parish priest. And by 1363, he'd moved into rooms at Queen's College and decided to become a doctor of theology and go all the way. And by 1372 or 1373, probably aged somewhere in his late forties, he did indeed become a doctor of theology at Oxford University and the author of a number of writings. He'd made a start on the advancement of his career with the patronage of John of Gaunt, the university had given him prebends and a living, and so his career seemed to be about to take off. But it's now that he's going to launch on the writings that would make him famous or notorious, depending on your point of view. And they were to prove rather career-limiting, as it happens, though initially things looked quite rosy. It was Wycliffe's views on ecclesiastical and civil lordship that gave him his leg-up career-wise. Wycliffe set out to answer the question, why should the church have all its vast possessions? And indeed the question whether or not they could and should be removed. Now the Pope liked all those goodies, and his argument was that the church's power and possessions rested on God's delegation to those who were in a state of grace, namely the Pope, priests and the church. The church indeed claimed that since they were in a state of grace, they were the ultimate source of all authority. This meant they had the right to bestow authority on others, namely temporal rulers. So they could bestow authority on a king or emperor, or indeed they could withdraw it from temporal rulers. Think of all those shenanigans with the Holy Roman emperors, for example. But Wycliffe used this argument about the state of grace against the church, 
He said, yes, fair point, and well made, Pope. Your authority comes from being in a state of grace. But think again, Pope. The church has become corrupted through its unbridled, unscrupulous, and the general unness of its pursuit of wealth and privilege. In a series of works over the next few years called On Civil Dominion, Wycliffe showed that the church had forfeited its rights. The lands that the church held, said Wycliffe, had been given to it by the crown to help it carry out its spiritual work. Since the church had shown itself unworthy, the crown could, and should, take those lands back. This was not an argument crafted to make the Pope a happy bunny. But this argument was jolly handy to Gaunt and others. This was because there was a strongly anti-clerical thread running through the higher reaches of society at the time. Actually, the arguments also got some support initially from the friars, or at least a section of them. Though, fair dues, this support wasn't going to last for very long. But this was because the friars were supposed to be all about poverty, and they also thought the institutional church had far too much lolly in power and was engaged in something of a tussle for power and influence with the friars. Wycliffe's arguments were also handy to the English crown, who at the time were fighting off the Pope and making it clear that they did not accept the need to pay his papal taxes. And so just for the moment, Wycliffe found himself to be popular. He found himself to be a man with powerful friends, and his career showed exciting and serious signs of taking off. He was made part of a five-man team to take part in papal negotiations in Bruges. He acquired a valuable living at a place called Lutterworth in Leicestershire from the Crown in 1374. But from this point forward, Wycliffe ran into problems. In February 1377, Bishop William Courtney summoned him to St Paul's to answer questions about his teachings. This was the famous occasion when Gaunt and Percy rescued him at St Paul's Cathedral but were forced to flee from the angry mob in London. Wycliffe was aware now there were many in the church who were out to get him. Wycliffe was without doubt touchy, sensitive to criticism and more than a little paranoid. But then just because he was paranoid didn't mean that people were not indeed out to get him. At this point within the church, there seems to have started a whispering campaign against him. He strenuously argued that he was thoroughly orthodox. Here he is. I protest publicly that I propose and wish with all my heart to be a whole-hearted Christian and to put forward and defend the law of Christ. People, he muttered, were misrepresenting him. He spoke darkly in sermons about being reported to the papal curia. He complained about some churchman from Toledo. The aforesaid Toledon and his pups are said to have reported all the way to the Roman curia, but too idiotically, for neither they nor the curia understand two words. In May 1377, Wycliffe was proved right. Pope Gregory condemned 18 of his propositions as erroneous and subversive and ordered him to be imprisoned, and Archbishop Sudbury commanded that he should appear to answer for himself. Now, as this was going on, the argument about whether England should pay papal taxes or not rumbled on, and Wycliffe argued not. 
The Pope, he argued, was only able to accept money when it was presented as alms. And on this occasion, this wasn't the case. This argument contributed towards Wycliffe's salvation. When he travelled to Lambeth Palace to meet Sudbury, he was joined by the representatives of Gaunt and Joan of Kent, Richard's mother. They stood shoulder to shoulder with Wycliffe, and the implication was pretty clear. He had powerful friends. And as a result, Sudbury got the message and backed down. Wycliffe still had the Chancellor of Oxford to contend with. But Oxford was also not yet ready to condemn Wycliffe. Part of the church it might be, but its most cherished freedom was the right for members of the university to pursue new ideas in search of the truth, wherever that led. So the Chancellor and the Congregation of Masters produced a ruling that was a triumph of the diplomatic art, i.e. it said precisely, zip. They said they couldn't imprison a man of England on the orders of the Pope. They said that although they couldn't condemn the truth of Wycliffe's writings, they understood that some people could take offence. Then, in 1378, as we heard last week, came the papal schism, and the influence and power of the Pope was correspondingly weakened. The long and short is that Wycliffe had got away with it, but he was now notorious and controversial, and his career was stopped in its tracks, just when things looked to be going his way. He'd made enemies at Oxford, with the strength of his views, and probably the way he made them. One of those enemies was a man called William Barton. Barton had also been a fellow at Merton at the same time as Wycliffe, and was a man who Wycliffe had thought a special friend. But Barton was no longer his friend. Barton was determined to stop Wycliffe and what he saw as his vile heresies. Equally, Wycliffe had become too radical, too notorious, and there was to be no more patronage from Gaunt or the Crown. But Wycliffe kept thinking and kept writing. His next bombshell sounds a little obscure, but was in fact absolutely explosive. Basically, he argued that priests cannot know if they are of the elect, i.e. destined to go to heaven. That meant that all this stuff about the priest being in a state of grace and interceding for the laity as a channel of grace was wash for the hogs. The Pope himself could not know if he was in a state of grace and destined to go to heaven, so he also might as well not be in a state of grace and therefore lacked the corresponding authority. No, he argued that if the Pope wanted spiritual authority, he had to go to the Bible, and he had to look at the model for the church there. And all the Bible had in it were the apostles. There was none of this stuff about popes and cardinals, bishops, property, lordships, jurisdictions, palliums, none of that whatsoever. So all of that man-made stuff needed to go west. To claim spiritual authority... The Pope needed to be chosen by God and live on the model of Christ. A nice chap the Pope might be, but he wasn't doing that. Wycliffe couldn't remember Christ living in all those nice palaces, wearing all those nice robes, eating quail's legs and heron's tongues and all that stuff. And then finally, what was probably in the end Wycliffe's most radical legacy. In Wycliffe's view, all of this was underpinned by going back to the Bible. The Bible was the only true touchstone of faith as the word of God 
and the principal channel of salvation, which meant that preaching the word was of much greater importance than the sacraments. It meant that reading the word of God was the main way to God. It's worth just going over the implications of all this again, because they're all pretty revolutionary, and also have very clear echoes of what will float the Protestant boat in a couple of centuries' time. First of all, Wycliffe was challenging the basis of the church wealth and temporal power. This was never going to go down well at the party, for obvious reasons. But it's very well worth noting that the concept was not new to the church. There was a powerful element of the friars who firmly believed this, and that their own orders had become corrupted from their original purpose by all the wealth it had acquired. So it was even more dangerous, because it hit a nerve. Secondly, Wycliffe was challenging the basis of the church spiritual authority, not just its temporal authority. So let's go back to last week. We talked about the mysticism of the Mass, the central role of the priest. Suddenly, Wycliffe was challenging all of that too. He'd shown that the priest had no idea if he was part of the elect or not, no idea if they were in a state of grace. So there was no surety at all that they could provide a channel of grace for the faithful. So where then did the priest's authority come from? Then thirdly, Wycliffe was providing an alternative, and it was one that was peculiarly attractive to late medieval men. Each individual should now go to the Bible, directly for their inspiration straight to the Word of God. Now by the late 14th century, the levels of literacy in English at least were far more advanced than they'd ever been. The church themselves were taking advantage of that, producing written sermons and texts of part of the Bible. You could find commentaries on the Bible called glosses, and people read them avidly. Personal religious investigation, reading and piety were all the rage. So the thought of direct access to God through the Bible was deeply attractive. On the other hand, unless you spoke Latin, there was still a major problem since the Bible was only available in Latin. And Latin remained almost exclusively the preserve of the clergy. And finally, despite Wycliffe's undoubted intellectual powers, he wasn't working in a vacuum on his own. Writers such as Langland, Gower and even Chaucer's works show a clear anti-clericalism, coupled with a desire to reform the church. Now Wycliffe seemed to be giving those movements an intellectual basis and rigour. It's clear that within Oxford, Wycliffe might be developing enemies, but he was also a feared and respected thinker, with a talent for inspiring disciples to join and follow him. So until 1380, Wycliffe continued to write and preach and dispute and teach his theories and gather around him followers who took up his themes within Oxford. Actually, there's no evidence at all that Wycliffe was trying to build a religious movement. But nonetheless, a religious movement was beginning to grow. And then worst of all came his views on transubstantiation. As we discussed last week, this is about the transformation of the bread and the wine at Mass into the body and blood of Christ. A relatively recent addition to the Catholic canon, 
from the 1215 Lateran Council. Now Wycliffe found the whole thing troublesome. And there had been a scholastic argument ever since 1215 as it happens. Wycliffe found it troublesome in a way that, to an amateur like myself, is almost impossible to understand and buttock-clenchingly complicated. Something about Aristotle. Something about accidents that have no substance. Since true understanding of Wycliffe's views on transubstantiation hover tantalisingly at the edge of my intellectual vision like a fly on a pile of poo, all I will say is that I have it on good authority that Wycliffe disagreed with the Church's teachings. That as a good Christian, as well as logician, he wanted to explain this thing. He wasn't out to court controversy. And so he showed how his view was consistent with the teaching of the Fathers, such as St Augustine. And in fact, given all the debate that had already gone on, the view of many historians has been that actually Wycliffe's writings were comparatively innocuous and unexceptional on this point. So while he argued that the Church's views about how all of this happened could not be right, he did not at any point argue that Christ was not really and actually present in the host during Mass, something which was later to be misinterpreted by the Lollards. But this was to prove, in fact, the end of Wycliffe's career in Oxford, because he struck at the very heart of the central act of the priest in the Mass. The thing kept well away from the laity, the mysticism of the miraculous transformation. Wycliffe seemed to be encouraging people to ask, wasn't the priest just some bloke in a dress? Suddenly priests didn't seem to be needed for the central mystery of the faith. And anyway, the priest was now nothing special, since he wasn't necessarily part of the elect anyway. His role now might be just to guide and inform through his learning. And anyone could access the word of God themselves anyway, if they could buy the Bible and learn Latin. In comparative terms, Wycliffe was toast. William Barton had become Chancellor of Oxford, and William Barton wasn't going to let any of this rest. Next week, we'll hear how Wycliffe's career ends, and more about the influence his teachings have had. Plus, I thought we might talk a little about the reappearance of the English language in our lives, back from the dead, or as Sid might have said, the greatest comeback since Lazarus. As ever, thanks to everyone for listening. I have some special thanks to Philip for your donation, to John for all the stuff you sent me about Richard II, his will, and particularly a scan of his signature, which is rather exciting, and to Richard for the mass of sources which are just fantastic. I dribble with excitement. And of course, thanks to all of you for your comments on the History of England website, on iTunes and Facebook. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. <laughs>